All right, we'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. Luke 13, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 30. And as we prepare to look at the text, I just want you to think if you've um, gone to or if you go to just about any funeral, which is not something we like to think about, but if you go to just about any funeral, you'll hear a eulogy which will most likely include they are in a better place. Now, how can we know that? That's the question. Is it true? What does Jesus say to that? That's what we want to know. What does Jesus speak to these issues? What does Jesus say about these things? What does the Bible say to these things? Last week in Luke 13, verses 18 through 21, we saw how Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed planted into the soil, into the ground, which becomes a tree. Also, he says it's like leaven that's put into a large amount of flour and then though it's small, permeates the whole amount. And so the kingdom, Jesus is saying, is unstoppable. It's powerful. Though it's small in its beginnings, just Jesus and some disciples, it, it continues. It advances. It will expand to the nations. And it is powerful, working from within the individual and working within the world, permeating both the individual and the world. But does that mean that it's easy to be a citizen of the kingdom? Is it easy to go to heaven? And that's what Jesus addresses in the text today. And so if you would stand with me, follow along as I read, beginning at verse 22 of Luke 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, or some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word. To even ponder a question like this question that is given in the text, will those who are saved be few? Where would we be without your word, Lord? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. You've promised that, and so we pray right now that you would bring faith. 
as we look to the word, as we read the word, as I preach the word, Lord, would you bring faith, strengthen those who know you, Lord, bring saving faith to those who do not yet know you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, it says in verse 22, Luke writes that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying. He's making his way from town to town to village to village. And as he does, Luke informs us that he's teaching and he's journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, that's significant. What is he teaching? What's Jesus teaching as he goes from village to village and place to place? Well, Luke chapter 4, verse 43 tells us, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. That's why I came, Jesus says. That's why I'm here, is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And so as he's going from place to place to place, that's what he's preaching. That's what he's telling. The good news of the kingdom. The good news of the gospel. Jesus is purposeful, and as he goes from place to place, we know that he has said he came to seek and save the lost. And so he's teaching, telling people how they can be saved. How can they know this God that he speaks about? How can they be a part of this kingdom that he speaks of? But Luke also notes in verse 22 that he's journeying toward Jerusalem. We don't want to overlook that detail. He's journeying towards Jerusalem. If we remember back to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a very important verse in the book of Luke. This is our king. This one who speaks of the kingdom is king over the kingdom. This is our king. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, life with God under the rule of the king who is Jesus. And the king of this kingdom came and set his face toward Jerusalem. And we might hear that and just say, well, that makes sense because Jerusalem is the place. It's the hub. So, of course, this king coming is setting his face to go to Jerusalem and he's going to take out his enemies and he's going to set up his throne and he's going to reign. But that's not what this means. That's not what Luke 9.51 means. That's not what Luke 13.22 means. When it says he sets his face toward Jerusalem, when it says in Luke 13, 22, he's journeying toward Jerusalem, he sets his face toward his death, toward the cross. And so Luke is repeating that here. Luke 9, 51 is the turning point in the gospel of Luke. From that verse forward, everything, as Luke is giving this account, everything is moving toward the cross. Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem, setting his face to the cross. Journeying purposefully toward the cross. Verse 23, as he's journeying purposefully toward the cross... Someone says to him, now imagine this, this is our king, the one who calls people to his kingdom. 
The king who says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Heading towards the cross, and it's as he journeys toward the cross, toward his death, that this question comes. And so these things that Jesus says in response to this question are being said on the way to the cross. Lord, this man says, will those who are saved be few? Lord, will those who are saved be few? And we ought to ask the question before we even consider his question more. Saved from what? We talk about salvation. We talk about being saved. We, that's just one of the church words and Bible words that we talk about a lot. But what does it mean? What does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? What does this man mean when he says, will those who are to be saved be few? Saved from what? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This man wonders if those who are to be saved will be few. So what is this salvation that we speak of? Salvation is this. It's deliverance. Deliverance from God's wrath and judgment into safety and eternal blessing through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Salvation, deliverance from God's wrath and judgment into safety and eternal blessing through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Delivered, rescued. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Salvation, deliverance from God's wrath and judgment into safety and eternal blessing through the sacrificial death of Jesus. God saves from wrath through Jesus. Now think of this man's question in light of that. Will those who are saved from God's wrath and eternal judgment into safety and eternal blessing through the sacrificial death of Jesus be few? You think about this question. It's the opposite of the thought today. We wouldn't even ask that. We would, our, our country, our mindset, we wouldn't even think to ask that. Many would read this or hear this question and proclaim loudly, no, no. Will they be few? There'll be many. And the same is true in Jesus' day. The widespread opinion of the Jewish people, which was solidified, backed up by the teaching of the rabbis, was that Israel as a whole would be saved. If you're a son of Abraham, don't worry. If you're a descendant of Abraham, you have nothing to worry about. You'll be saved. But Jesus comes and he begins to teach about the kingdom. And his teaching has been that the line is not a nationalistic line. It's a spiritual line. It doesn't matter what nation you are from. It matters your spiritual state. 
You must be born again. And so we see his teaching in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 6, he begins this discourse where he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Pronouncing woes on some of the Jewish people who are listening. Telling them, love your enemies, do good, bless those who curse you. Going on in in, in that section later on. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it has been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the streams broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. What's he saying to these people who are assuming they're okay? If you hear the word of God and don't do anything, you will be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And their assumptions are crumbling. And so we have this man who's hearing teaching from Jesus like this and realizing that Jesus' teaching is not like the rabbi's teaching. Jesus teaches... Those who are his brothers and sisters, those who are connected to him and connected to God are those who hear the word of God and do it. Those who are the good soil where the seed of the word goes in and does something inside of them. And so the man asks, Lord, will those who are saved be few? The question really gets to this. Who is it that receives the kingdom? Who's in and who's out? Jesus has made it very clear in his teaching that there's only two groups of people. The saved and the unsaved. Believers and unbelievers. There's no middle group. There's no middle ground. There's no select group who are good and don't need to be saved to get to heaven. The scriptures tell us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's very interesting that Luke has just recorded Jesus teaching about how the kingdom will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and nothing will stop it. How it will permeate the whole world. And so how does Jesus respond to this question? How does Jesus respond when this man asks him, will, will those who are saved be few? Well, he doesn't give a number, does he? He doesn't say, well, this, how, this is how many people there will be. And he doesn't even give a direct answer. He doesn't say yes or no. He calls for something. He calls for urgency. Jesus' response to this question is a call for Urgency. What does he say? Verse 24. Strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive. The door to eternal life, Jesus says, is narrow. 
This is not what the world thinks. In fact, it goes against much of what we hear in churches today. You could go to many churches and you'd think that the door is very broad and the calling is very easy to get to heaven. But that's not what Jesus says. He says the door is narrow. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is narrow, or, or the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Therefore, Jesus says, strive. Strive. That word strive means to exert every effort. To exert oneself to the full, to strain every nerve in our struggle against the opponents. And who are the opponents? Satan, sin, and self. Us. We're the opponents. My flesh is the opponent. Strive, exert every effort. Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to enter through the narrow door. And what does it take? What has he told us that it takes? Repentance. Repent and believe. Deny yourself, Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's turning from self. No longer worshiping self. Deny yourself, Jesus says, and take up your cross daily. Die to yourself daily. Who's the opponent in this? I'm the opponent. I'm the one opposing God. I'm the one against God. Strive. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hear the word of God and do it. Not just hearers with our ears only, but those who hear the word of God and do something with it. Respond to it. Those who are just casually responding to life and the gospel of Jesus are wide gate people. They think the gate is wide. They think they have nothing to worry about. They have no urgency. But Jesus says, strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. Exert your maximum effort because of the supreme importance and the supreme value of attaining entry into the kingdom of God. Nothing compares. What Jesus is calling you to leave, what Jesus is calling you to deny is nothing in comparison to what we gain. Because we gain Him. We get him. Matthew thirteen forty four. We looked at this last week as we talked about the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. He looks at all of the things he's attained in this life, all of the work that he's accomplished, all of the the things that he's acquired. Riches, home, family, whatever it is. He looks at that and he looks at the treasure that is Jesus and he knows what is true. Everything that I have doesn't compare to the riches of knowing Jesus. And so in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to get the field because the field holds the treasure. That's what the kingdom is like. So strive, Jesus is saying. Strive for what is better. Now listen, Jesus is not teaching that our salvation is dependent on works. Don't read a verse like this and say, well, Jesus must be saying if I strive hard enough and I do the right things and I'm a good enough person and I figure out how to fit myself through the narrow door, then he's going to accept me because I've, I've striven hard enough. I've worked hard enough and I've impressed God. He's not saying that. It's all by grace. It's all enabling grace. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Strive. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Strive. But understand in your striving, it's God who's striving through you. You're just responding to his grace. You're responding to this beautiful story of grace and this gracious heart of God who would look to you with favor instead of anger. Strive with the strength that he supplies. Strive by the power of his spirit. Strive in hope. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Such a wonderful picture of what Jesus is saying in Luke 13 about striving. Don't settle for last place. Don't be the kind of person that says something like, well, if I just make it to heaven by the skin of my teeth, I'll be happy. If I can just barely get there, if I can barely get by and just make it into heaven, I'll be happy. You won't. We don't get to heaven by the skin of our teeth. We get to heaven by the sacrifice of a savior. We get to heaven by his work on our behalf. And when we realize what he's done, we have the joy of the man in the field. And we're like Paul who says, I don't want to be last. I want to run with everything. I want to strive after this prize with everything because he saved me. He saved me. So Jesus says, strive, strive. 
to enter by the narrow door. This is something that we don't take casually or half-heartedly. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And Jesus is a Savior. To think that He came and that He was punished for the sinfulness of men. For me. For my sins. That He was treated as a transgressor even though He had never done anything wrong. To look at His sacrifice, that sacrifice... And then to take it so casually that we don't strive after him. How could, we, how could we think that way? How could we do that? That's what Jesus is saying. Strive. Strive after him. Strive, Jesus says, because many will seek to enter and will not be able. And what does that mean? Jesus gives us the answer in the next verses, beginning with verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me. All you workers of evil. Jesus says the time is limited. We have this life and this life only to respond to the gospel of Jesus. The day is coming when the narrow door will be shut. Master of the house will shut the door. You can see the picture here in these verses where Jesus speaks. The people in the text here have waited too long. The master of the house gets up, he shuts the door. They waited too long. And now they're panicking. They didn't respond to the gospel with repentance and love for God. They didn't respond to the gospel with joy. And even now, they're knocking as they knock on the door is not out of love for Jesus. Look at, look at what he's saying here. Think of the conversation that's taking place. They call to him, open to us. He replies, I do not know where you come from. I don't know you. They begin to lay out their case for why they deserve to come in. We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. These are not right responses. Nowhere do they say we love you. Not we trusted in you. They still trust in themselves and they believe that they deserve to be there. He replies, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Terrifying thought. In the office this week, we were talking about this text and Caressa was comparing it to the story of Noah and the ark, thinking through that story. If Noah, God calls Noah, he gives commands to Noah, he chooses Noah. 
gives them these commands. And for decades, he strives, he strives, he strives to do what God had called him to do. But it was never Noah. It was God. It was God that chose him. It was God that gave him his commands. It was God that set him apart. And we see in the story in Genesis that it wasn't Noah who shut the door. It was God who shut the door. And imagine what it was like when the floods came. Decades he's been building this ark. Certainly for decades he's been ridiculed for building this ark. And then God shuts the door. And those who mocked before now likely pleaded, let us in. It was too late. It's very similar to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Beginning with verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Is that you? The question is not, did you attend church regularly? The question is not, did you preach? The question is not, did you know about Jesus? The question is not, did you ever ever pray a prayer or sign a card? Did you know Jesus and did he know you? Did you repent and trust in him alone for salvation? Were you born again? These people didn't know God. These people in Matthew 7, these people that Jesus is talking about in Luke 13, they didn't know God. And what's the result of that? He tells us the result, which is a terrifying thought, beginning with verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Weeping, Jesus says, and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, showing their eternal grief, sorrow, as they're separated from all joy and separated from God who is all joy. Separated from all hope of rescue. Gnashing of teeth representing rage. Why would they be angry? Why do they rage? We see some reasons in the text. They believe they deserve to be there. They have no love for Jesus, but this arrogant expectation of deliverance. Claiming the things that they did the works that they did 
as reasons for being there. We would see their rage because they can see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but no place set for them. They thought all their lives they would be there because they were good people. They were God's people because they were Abraham's people. But they rejected God even as they rejected his son, Jesus Christ. They rage because they see Gentiles reclining at the table in the kingdom. And they're left out. This alone would enrage them. Those who the Jewish people considered last are sitting at the table with the king and they themselves, who they considered first, are left out, cast out. Terrifying thought, but Jesus taught it because it's true. Jesus warned us because it's true. Many people hear a message like what Jesus says here and recant. How could a loving God ever do that? How could a loving God send people to hell? That's what people outside the gate thought. How could a loving God send me, son of Abraham, to hell? How could a loving God do that? But consider this, God is just. God is perfectly just. God is as perfectly just as he is loving. He's as perfectly holy and set apart as he is kind and merciful and gracious. He's perfect. He's perfectly just. We, we are the ones who have sinned against him. We're the transgressors. We're the wrong. We're the problem. And so the question is not how could God send people to hell? The question is how? How could a holy and just and righteous God not send me to hell? How could he not send me? How could he not put me there? How could he not have me as the outcast? How could he ever accept me? How could he be gracious and send his son, his son in my place? And how could I not respond to such grace with a striving after his love, a striving towards the narrow door, striving after this loving and merciful Savior, no matter what he asks of me, no matter what it demands, how could I not strive? That's what Jesus is calling us to strive, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, here's the good news of the gospel. The door is narrow. That is truth. That's what Jesus declares. 
but it's wide enough to admit you. Because Jesus is the door. And all who come through him enter freely. If you believe the gospel and submit your life to Jesus, repent of your sins and believe you won't be turned away. You won't be left out. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the narrow door. Jesus says to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In Acts 4.12, we we see there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus and only Jesus. He is the door. And he's merciful. And if you don't know him, if you are a person where Jesus would say, I don't know where you come from. I don't know who you are. I don't know you. And submit to him today. If you never have before, would you be even willing today to go and pray? Pray with someone, repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. The prayer room is going to be open in the back of the lobby as we sing together. I would encourage you, don't wait another day. Michael and Melanie will be there. We would love to pray with you. Those of us, though, who are saved, those of us who rejoice, those of us who know the joy of the man in the field, we have found the treasure and we have seen he is worth far more than anything we have ever lived for or ever could live for. We are saved and we know him. Are we still striving? The Apostle Paul says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. Have you grown complacent or relaxed in your faith and walk? Jesus says, strive, take up your cross daily and follow me, Jesus says. Follow me, hear my word and do it. Are we still striving? Are we disciplining disciplining our body and keeping it under control for his glory and honor and praise? Even as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, examine. Let's examine our hearts. Are we striving? Are we striving for his glory? Are we responding to his unbelievable grace with a life of joy lived in his presence and for his namesake? We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. It's a reminder for us, a reminder of the grace given to us through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Grace. Jesus says in Luke 22, as he's with his disciples, when the hour came in, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's a reminder. This joyful reminder that we have as as we partake together his body, his blood, proclaiming together his death until he comes. This joyful reminder of our king who, who laid down his life for our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. And even as we prepare, Lord, to take the bread and the cup, as we sing together, Lord, we want to be a people who are striving. We want to be a kingdom-minded people, Lord. You saved us. Jesus, you set your face to go to Jerusalem. You willingly laid down your life. You were crucified. For my sins. You died. Punished. For my transgressions. I I pray, Lord, that we would consider the cost, the cost of our salvation, your very life, the free gift of our salvation granted to us through you. I pray that you would help us to be a people who strive with joy, who are eager to hear the word of the Lord, eager to do the word of the Lord eager to proclaim the word of the Lord, eager to walk in your ways, eager to deny ourselves, eager to take up our cross and follow you, eager to see you glorified through our lives, eager to see you embraced by others. Help us to be a people who strive. And Lord, if there's anyone here in this place right now who does not know you, Lord. Maybe they never even knew that you were the only door. You are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father except through you. Maybe they've never known that the door is narrow, but you invite them to come. I pray that today they would submit to you as their king that they would repent of their sins, that they would see with joy that you would open their eyes, Lord, that they would see with joy that you are worth more than anything. And today would be the day of salvation. Praise you, Lord, that you alone are able to bring it about. We pray in your name. Amen.